God has placed limits on our own power. Our power is not limitless. This is a very good thing. I was reminded of an event that happened when we had our fourth baby, and she was probably five or six months old. And one of the things you need to know about babies is that you're not allowed to give them several things until they're at least a year old. So you're not allowed to give them honey, you're not allowed to give them nuts, you're not allowed to give them cow's milk. They're not able to deal with these foods at such a young age. Off Rosie goes out, leaving me at home with the children. I get our five-month-old up and give her a bowl of Honey Nut Cheerios. (laughs) My wife comes home, she rolls her eyes, and says what I thought was a deeply philosophical statement, it's good that there's limits on your power. (laughs) If this is what you do with cereal, what would you do to the cosmos, you know? Our power is limited and restricted. This passage is all about power, but it is not about human power that is limited. Not about Elijah's power, which is limited, or Elisha's power, which is limited, but it's about God's power. God's power, which is not limited in any way. This passage gives us three um, highlights of how this is true, three ways in which God's power is not limited. Limited, And we're going to look at those together as we work our way through the text. The first one, then, is this. God's power, unlike our power, God's power is not limited to one era. God's power is not limited to any one era. We see this in verse 8 as we place it in its larger biblical context. So Elijah and Elisha have made their way to the Jordan River. We get their journey there in verses 1 through 7. And it's actually quite an unusual or interesting journey because they start in Gilgal. So they start over here and they're going to make their way to Jericho. But first of all, they head over to Bethel. They arrive in Bethel, they meet with some of the prophets there, and then go back to Jericho. Now, the reason this is interesting is that Jericho is back over here, probably about here, okay? And so they've gone on this circuitous route. They're at Gilgal, they're very near Jericho, and they're going to cross uh, the Jordan River there. Why is it that they make their way over to Bethel? And uh, theologians have puzzled over this, and they have come up with some uh, good suggestions. Perhaps they're in some way retracing the entrance to the Promised Land. Uh, They've come up with some terrible suggestions, uh, such as uh, this one writer who basically used it as an allegory for the Christian life. So we all start in Gilgal, and then we mature and go to Bethel, and then mature more and arrive at Jericho, and then we fully mature and cross the Jordan. And that's, the, the Bible does not allegorize like that, okay? It's absolute, absolutely nonsense. But there's some, some confusion as to why they have taken this circuitous journey. Uh, when I am confused about the Old Testament, I approach our resident Old Testament scholar. Bill, are you in this service? Here he is, okay. Hey, Bill. So I take Bill out to lunch, and I say, Bill, this is really interesting. Gilgal, Bethel, Jericho, Jordan. What's that about? And Bill says, I don't know. <laughs> I was like, Bill, I bought you a burrito for that. <laughs> you know? And then we get back to the church, and um, I approach our erstwhile chief of staff, my right-hand man, ask him what he thinks, and he says, there was probably a Chipotle in Bethel. <laughs> <laughs> So we're unsure exactly what this journey is about. That's the honest truth. One thing is clear, of course, that Elijah is doing a farewell tour of sorts to those places where the faithful remnant can still be found. 
So these prophets that are in Israel, the numbers of faithful followers has so dwindled, and yet there are still these prophets. And before he ascends to heaven, he visits them one last time. In any case, they arrive at the Jordan River, and Elijah does something really interesting, which is he unbuttons. And he takes off his cloak, I guess. And he takes it off, and then Elisha's sort of looking at him, wondering what he's doing, and he starts to roll it up. Someone's looking at me. I'm not going to get struck by lightning for this. (laughs) (laughs) It's not grace plus robe, okay? We're good. (laughs) Right? So he, he, he takes his cloak, and he rolls it up like this, and then he walks over to the Jordan River, and he slaps the water with it. And I always think this is a bit of a strange picture. It's not the best thing to strike the water with, you know? Like, you'd think, like, a big staff, you know, or something kind of impressive. He kind of, like, flops it at the water, and you can hear this splat. The point, of course, is that the robe is symbolic of uh, his uh, status as a prophet within Israel. The cloak is symbolic of the fact that he is God's representative. So as he strikes the water with the cloak, he is making clear, look, the power for this hasn't come from me. The power for this has come from the Lord. And as soon as he strikes it and you hear that splat, the water stops. It slows and then parts and rises on either side so that Elijah and Elisha are able to walk like up this aisle here today across the Jordan River. What an incredible scene. What an incredible, can you imagine um, the, the feelings and the thoughts as they make their way across this riverbed? Where a river flowed just moments ago, here they are walking and they can see the rocks that are there and some slime and some things that were thrown in the river and they're just making their way across to the other side. It's a staggering moment as God, God's power parts the Jordan River. Interesting thing about this though, Bible quiz. When did this happen before? Do you remember? This happened before when the Israelites entered into the promised land. Under the leadership of Joshua, they went to Jericho and they went outside of Jericho and they came to the Jordan River and in order to enter through into the promised land, Joshua has the Ark of the Lord, which is the big chest that symbolized God's presence with them, carried by the priests down into the water. And as soon as the priests' feet hit the water, the river stops, and it parts, and it rises, and they walk through on dry ground. This happened some 500 years or so before Elijah's time. The point, God's power is not limited to one era. God was able to part the Jordan in Joshua's day, and he's able to part the Jordan in Elijah's day. His arm does not atrophy in 500 years. His arm is strong. And this is very, very, very important for us as a church. Because we come together today to worship the God whose arm does not atrophy, whose power is not limited to one era, but whose power is real and true today. The God of Joshua and the God of Elijah is our God here today. And that makes all the difference in the world. I think sometimes it's hard for us to believe. It's hard for me to believe. as you read these texts and these amazing things happen, it's hard for us to believe that such things could happen again. But why did those things happen? Not because of Joshua, not because of Elijah, but because of the God of Joshua and Elijah. And that God 
is our God. So as a church, this makes all the difference in the world as we look to see the God of Joshua and the God of Elijah transform us, bring renewal and repentance and healing to our lives, enable us to walk through those things that we are struggling with. As we look to see him transform our church, as we long for this place to be a place where Jesus is known, where Jesus is enjoyed, where Jesus is made known. As we long to see him transform, yes, our city and our culture and even the world to the ends of the earth, it makes a difference that God's power is not limited to one here. As we gather this morning, I wonder if we're a people who find it hard to believe that God is going to do great things again. His word to us says, his power is not limited to one here. He's here, he's present today. Second interesting thing our text tells us about God's power, first of all, it's not limited to one era. Secondly, it's not limited to any one person. His power is not limited to any era, but also not to any one person. Elijah has been an incredible man of God, and I have really enjoyed working through these scriptures uh, together. He is a wild, bold, then depressive character who has done some amazing things. It is under his ministry that we saw this jar of oil uh, never run dry. Under his ministry that we saw a widow's son raised from the dead. Under his ministry that we saw all the events on Carmel when the Lord ascended fire from the sky. Under his ministry that we see the Jordan parted again. God has done powerful things through the prophet Elijah. And Elisha now knows that it's his turn. That he's up next. Now listen, you really don't want to follow Elijah. You know, when you're in the bullpen and you see who's back before you, you don't want Elijah there. And so Elisha is nervous. He's nervous about this call. And so when Elijah asks him, hey, is there one thing I can do for you before I go to heaven? Elisha says, yes, there is. Uh, Give me a double portion of your spirit. What does this mean? He's not saying, I want to be twice the prophet you are. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, a double portion of your spirit is the inheritance that comes from you. In their day, a double portion of the inheritance went to the oldest son, went to the heir. As an oldest son myself, I like that idea. Uh, Dad, hope you're watching. Um, It went to the the heir. And so what Elisha is asking for is not some grandiose egotistical power, but assurance that he is going to be Elijah's heir, that he is going to have what it takes from the Lord in order to follow him faithfully. And so the events unfold. Elijah says, I'm not sure I can grant that. That's a very powerful request. Because, of course, that's not something he can grant. That can only come from the Lord. But, Elijah says, if you see me going into heaven, then that is a sign to you from God that you are indeed my heir and will have what you need to follow in my stead. Verse 12 comes. Elijah's taken up to heaven. And then we read that Elisha sees it. He sees it. And God confirms to him that his power was not limited to Elijah. Elijah is going, but the power remains and will be present for you in your ministry. God then does something very interesting because not only does he confirm it to Elisha, but he goes ahead and confirms it to all the prophets who are watching. So you remember that when they get to Jericho, the company of prophets come and they stand and they observe all that's taking place at the Jordan. And he has confer- God has confirmed that his power is not uh, limited to one person, to Elisha. And now he confirms the same thing to all that are gathered there. How? Elisha goes, 
and he picks up the cloak that is lying amidst the dust after the whirlwind has taken Elijah. And he walks back up on the other side of the Jordan, and he does the exact same thing. He strikes the water with the cloak. As he does so, he does something very interesting, which he says, where is the Lord, the God of Elijah? He is highlighting to all that are present, look, the power for this act is not in this cloak. The power for this act is in the God who does these things. What happens the second it hits? The water slows, parts, rises, Elisha walks through again on dry ground. All who are there see with their own eyes that God's power was not limited to Elijah, but God's power continues on with Elisha. It is not dependent upon any one person, but is there for all who would follow him. And this is a very important principle for our church, yes, in general, but for us personally too. True, at least in a couple of ways. First of all, this is a really important principle. If you think that you are a little bit beyond God's reach, as you work with people and talk to people about the gospel and about the forgiveness that can be theirs in Jesus, so many of us struggle with this sense of that is good news and that is true and it can be true for people over there, but I'm a little bit worse than they are. And okay, Pastor Boy, you're sitting here telling me this, but if you knew what I'd really done, if you knew what I was really like, you would reject me and you would not let me sit here with you in your office. Ever since Eden, many of us have this nagging doubt that yes, we're all sinful, we're all broken, but we're just that little bit worse. And we create things to sort of justify why we are a little bit worse. Maybe the nature of our sin has been more dramatic. Maybe the nature of our position means it's more shocking. One reason and another, we feel like, yes, the gospel can be true, but I'm a little bit beyond its reach. And God comes in his power and he says, I'm the God of Joshua and Elijah and Elisha. And my power is not limited to people. You think you're beyond my reach? You don't have any idea how far my reach extends. The fact that his power is not limited to any one person is good news for us who are brought near by his strong arm and brought into relationship with him. You cannot be outside his grasp this morning. This principle is also good news, though, for, for us in the evangelical world, if I can step on a few toes here for a moment. Um, God's power is not limited to any one person. This is a challenge for us in our day and age where we tend to idolize leaders. We do this in politics. We do this in entertainment. We also do it in the church world. So the Pope is retiring, and over in America, we have our own popes. We have the Presbyterian Pope, who is Tim Keller in New York. <laughs> And we have the non-denominational Pope, who is Mark Driscoll in Seattle. Okay. We have the Baptist Pope, who is John Piper, right in the Midwest. Okay. And we have Popes of our different regions. And we idolize them. And no one would agree with this more than Keller, Driscoll, and Piper. I'm not really getting at them. It's more our response to them. We are a people who tend to idolize uh, leaders. And this creates something very dangerous for our souls very dangerous for our souls because what we tend to then do is in a sense live vicariously through them we live our spiritual lives vicariously through them what do i mean by that i mean we ourselves haven't really tasted and experienced a great passion for god's glory but we've heard piper preach some great sermons on it 
we ourselves have not really thoughtfully engaged with how to reach this broken world with the gospel, but we've read a Tim Keller book. We ourselves barely pray, but we read Paul's trips book and it was good. Our spiritual experience is allowed to be dimmed and stunted. So that if I say to you, what is the present power of the gospel in your life? You don't know who to quote. It's one of the questions we always ask uh, pastors as they are coming to be ordained in our presbytery. They come loaded for bear with every theological fact known to man in their brain. And you ask them, what's the present power of Jesus in your life? And you can see them scanning through the Rolodex thinking, I don't remember the answer to that. (laughs) Of course, we all have good answers to that. It just sometimes takes us a minute to get there. But you see the danger in this idolization of spiritual leaders. That God doesn't call us to come and have have a spiritual experience on the basis of what someone else has done. He calls us to come into his presence as we are, not as we ought to be, into his presence, bringing our true selves there to engage with him, to have relationship with him, not to send Keller Piper Driscoll as an intermediary. He sent his intermediary to us. His name is Jesus, and we can have full relationship with him. God's power is not limited to any one person. This is good news because it means we can come into his presence. So, God's power, not limited to any one era, not limited to any one person. Lastly and briefly, God's power is also not limited to our expectations. God's power is not limited to our expectations. Let's deal with Elijah going up to heaven. This incredible scene where the chariots of fire appear and there's these angels and there's this heavenly army and then a whirlwind descends and he's taken back up. Note that he goes to heaven in a whirlwind, not in the chariot, you know, swing low, swing chariot. Um, okay. <laughs> Nearly there, right? Swing low, sweet whirlwind, I guess. Didn't get one, right? uh, so he goes up to heaven in the whirlwind and um, he has this, just this miraculous... Miraculous ascension there. Let's place that verse, verse 11, in its larger biblical context. Do you remember what Elijah prays for in chapter 19 of 1 Kings? Remember? He prays that he die. He's so depressed, he's so distraught, he's so overwhelmed, he's so worn out with the activity of being God's prophet that he says, my end has come, uh, my time has come, I just want to die. And the Lord says, you need to raise your expectations. I don't have death in mind for you. How amazing is it that (laughs) this man who asked that he would die becomes one of only two men in the whole Bible not to die? Who remembers the other one? Enoch, remember? Yeah. Good. Enoch, in Genesis we read, he walked with God then was no more. Or Enoch, if you're American. Um, it's kind of like the Elijah, Elisha, Elisha thing. I kind of feel like, you know, you brought strange pronunciation upon yourselves. I'm sorry. <laughs> right. Enoch and Elijah. The only man never to die. 
Even Jesus dies. Even Jesus dies. And this man who prayed that he would die becomes one of two in the history of the world to pass uh, over death. Remarkably encouraging truth to us in the midst of our struggles. In the midst of our struggles, it's very easy to develop what I've referred to before as small world syndrome. You know what this is like when all you can see, all that's before you is the struggle at hand, is the difficulty of the day. And you have one solution, which is, Lord, take this difficulty away from me. Take this struggle away. And it's natural to feel that way, and it's good to pray that prayer. Be honest with the Lord. However, have an open hand to the fact that his power is not limited to our expectations. And he might just go ahead and do something that is much greater than we have bargained for. Ephesians 3.20. God tells us and we give glory to the God who is able to do immeasurably more than what? What we can ask or even imagine. What we could ask or think. I love that verse. We can imagine a lot. We can come up with all sorts of crazy ideas. And the Lord says, give me your best idea. Lame. I've got a better one. (laughs) Able to do immeasurably more than all we can ask or all we can imagine. And that truth matters to me. It matters to me when I am struggling. It matters to me when I am depressed. It matters to me when I don't see a way out from a certain situation. Because I know that God is not bound merely to fix my situation. God has bound himself to act above and beyond our expectations. Time is running out. We believe in a God whose power is not limited to one era, not limited to one person, not limited to our expectations. A God who is all-powerful and a God who uses his power properly, not a God who will give us honey nut Cheerios. (laughs) A God who is with us and for us and a God to whom we can trust our very lives.